0: Welcome everybody to the Cato Institute. I'm Ian Vasquez. I direct the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. Most books on economic development, especially those on, uh, with respect to developing countries, focus on the high level of poverty in the world, the appalling condition of the world's poor, and on what to do about this, that situation. Usually some grand plan or a new solution to ending poverty. That focus, exemplified by the work of the World Bank, the UN, and countless NGOs dedicated to helping the world's poor, then gets amplified by the media uh, and goes a long way in forming opinion about the state of the world. To be sure, extreme poverty in the world is still too high, and there is much that poor countries and rich countries can do to end it. But too often, Uh, The public perception of the state of humanity is at odds with the reality and misses the bigger picture, which is that there has been extraordinary uh, human progress in the past couple of centuries and in the developing world in the past few decades, representing a break with thousands of years of human experience. To give just one example, in my lifetime, uh, life expectancy in developing countries has increased by 10 to 15 years. In South Korea, it has increased by more than 20 years. This is tremendous uh, uh, progress of the kind that can be seen when you look at virtually the whole range of human development indicators. So we are very pleased uh, to host today uh, one of the world's leading authorities on poverty and development, who has written a book that catalogues those tremendous gains, explains them, and suggests uh, modest but critical ways in which the rich can help the poor. We at Cato are especially pleased to hold this forum today since the book by Angus Deaton, The Great Escape, Health, Wealth, and the Origins of Inequality is consistent uh, with the work we have long published and promoted, beginning with that of our late colleague Julian Simon decades ago, who challenged the status quo by presenting the facts on why and how we are living longer, healthier, more comfortable lives, and can continue to expect uh, to do so. I see some of his insights in Professor Deaton's book. Continuing that important uh, work, just a month ago, we launched a new website, humanprogress.org, that gathers millions of data points from countries around the world uh, and allows users to see any number of improvements in human well-being. I do hope that these efforts uh, to, to show Just how recent um, and how rapid living standards have increased around the world help to inform a better uh, discussion about the types of policies and institutions that can uh, continue to promote those improvements. So let me introduce our main speaker today, who will provide what I consider to be a realistic partial assessment of the state of humanity. Professor Angus Deaton is the Dwight Eisenhower Professor of Economics and International Affairs at the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs and the Economics Department at Princeton University. His main research areas are in health, well-being, <coughs> and economic development. He has previously taught at Cambridge University and the University of Bristol. He is a Fellow of the British Academy, he's a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and has been a president of the American Economic Association. His current research focuses on the determinants of health in rich and poor countries, as well as on the measurement of poverty in India and around the world. He is uh, one of the most accomplished uh, and uh, widely published scholars on those and other issues. Please help me welcome
1: Professor Deaton. Um, thank you very much for that wonderful introduction, Ian, and I'm very glad to be here, though a little startled by the brightness um, of your lights, um, and I hope I will manage to um, handle that. Um, the, the Great Escape in the title of my book, um, and it, it's a little hard to tell from this audience, but it's the, the running metaphor is with the Steve McQueen movie um, called The Great Escape, um, usually I get a ripple of recognition from the older people uh, in the <laughs> audience here. Um, the younger ones are too young. I, one of my students at Princeton said she took a boy home and told her dad that she wanted to marry him. And her dad would not let her marry him until he'd seen The greatest kid. Um, it's such a sort of cult thing. But for those of you who haven't seen it, this is a movie about, based on a true story um, of um, the escape from a German prisoner of war camp. In World War II, um, where they dug tunnels out underneath the camp, and um, about 200 people escaped through these tunnels um, and then went off um, to try and make it um, home. I may come back to that. What happened to them later? Um, the, of course, this escape didn't leave, didn't take everybody. And so this escape left a lot of people behind and created a lot of inequality. And that's one of the things I'm going to talk about here. So these greatest episodes of human progress are what I call the great escape, um, and what Ian was talking about, about human progress. Um, And in the most obvious dimensions, these are from destitution, material destitution, from ill health, from premature mortality, to the long life and high material living standards that most of us enjoy um, today. Um, The book is mostly about health and wealth, um, but I I didn't want (coughs) to go past this without noting that there are many other things that are much better in the world that I don't deal with at great length, but are very, very important. Um, There are more people living under democracy today than has been true for a very, very long time, indeed ever. Um, There are huge, large-scale reductions in violence, around the world over the centuries, which contribute enormously to human well-being. I don't actually know what happened here. There we go. Um, There are huge increases in education, um, particularly, but not exclusively, among girls. Um, In one of the areas I work in, Rajasthan, in northwest um, India, um, when we do household surveys and you interview the adult women, None of them have ever been to school, and none of them can read and write. Um, and yet, if you look out of the window, um, you see lines of little girls um, going to schools. Um, the schools they're going to leave a lot to be desired, um, but at least it's a start, and it's something that's really quite, quite new. Um, it's also um, contested, but I would believe and argue that increases in life evaluation have also accompanied this, that people know their lives are better and will report and tell you that their lives are better. Now, as with the great escape in the movie, most of these episodes have only allowed some to escape, leaving many others behind. I would argue that mostly that is the nature of the beast, Um, that progress does not come evenly, Um, that progress is usually for some with others either following behind or not following behind, but in this sense, progress is one of the great engines um, of inequality, and I'm going to talk about some of those episodes in human history, and what we might think of the inequality um, that <clears throat> results. I mean, as I posed it, it's very hard to object to that sort of inequality. Why, if some escape and some don't, is the world a worse place? Um, well, it isn't. Um, But I do think there are reasons to be concerned about inequality, especially in the United States today, and I will talk a little bit about that. So the most famous of these episodes, and it's the sort of ur-case for my book, is what historians nowadays call the Great Divergence. (coughs) And this is the most famous and obvious case, and this is the sustained economic growth um, that began in Northwest Europe, particularly Britain and Holland, between 1750 and 1850 and that which sowed the seeds of the increases in material living standards and the increase in life expectancies, which we know today. And, of course, that did exactly what I'm talking about here, that that pulled those countries away from the worlds, the countries that had not had the industrial revolution, um, and for most of the world at that point, um, opening up enormous gaps between those countries that had sustained economic growth and those that didn't. Um, Those gaps are essentially the gaps that are with us today um, and that uh, make up the majority of global inequality. Um, When I first learned about the Industrial Revolution in Cambridge and England in the 1960s, um, it was taught in such a way as to say this was the first time there'd been any real prosperity um, in the world. And we don't actually think that anymore. Um, And I think it was partly that people had just not done the scholarship for China or India or Africa. And so previous episodes of great prosperity had been sort of lost in the mist of history and were certainly not taught um, to undergraduates at that time. One of my favorite examples is from China. And many of you may have seen this terrific picture um, before. Um, the ship in the background belonged to Admiral Hay, And Admiral Hay was sent off by the Emperor of China um, to explore the South China Sea. And he had a fleet of those ships, um, of which this was the Admiral's ship. They were very heavily armed. They swept everything before them. They went down the South China Sea. Um, they went all the way down the east coast of Africa, um, defeating all opposition all along the way, um, plundering as they went, bringing gifts back, From the emperor. My favorite one is they brought a giraffe (laughs) back. And the giraffe they bought in Calcutta, which, when you think about it, is a somewhat odd place to buy a giraffe. (laughs) So I believe that you, then, as today, you could buy almost anything in Calcutta, including a giraffe. Though Admiral, he probably didn't pay for it. Um, And he sailed back home, um, sweeping all before him. The tiny ship. Um, the Mosquito ship in front is Christopher Columbus's Santa Maria. Um, and the thing to note is that Admiral Hay sailed nearly 100 years before Christopher Columbus, I mean, about 1410, so 80 years before Christopher Columbus. So if you look at this picture, it's the best summary I know um, of the relative economic might of East and West in the 15th um, century. The world, of course, does not look that way anymore. Um, the question you might ask yourself is, you know, it was the little ship that changed the world, not the fleet of big ships, and played an enormously important part in conjuring up the world as we know it today. And the big ship did nothing at all. And why did that happen? You know, why didn't Admiral Hay go home and make his next, exhibition, his next expedition to the west coast of the United States and change world history. And the answer, of course, is when he got there, the emperor was afraid, and the emperor didn't like the idea of these wild mariners sailing around the world getting rich and possibly threatening the emperor's position. So those ships never sailed again. They were tied up at the wharf, and they rotted there. Whereas, of course, we know that with Christopher Columbus, um, things were different. For me, that's one of many lessons of, A, how toxic politics um, can choke off um, economic growth. Another message you can take from that is extreme inequality choking off economic growth because the emperor had all the power and he saw a threat from the new technologies and he suppressed that threat. They're very similar stories. Um, So... um, The way I think historians think of this now is not that there was no prosperity before. The puzzle now is not that. The puzzle is why was the prosperity sustained? Um, And that's something economists and others have perhaps not made a huge amount of progress on um, over the last period, but that's now the topic. As I say at the bottom, the world as a whole, these gaps have never really closed. There's much then international inequality measurements are much more fraught than most people seem to think. I don't think we have really good data on these. Um, but my reading would be that country by country, the gaps in material living standards are still not closing um, hardly at all. That's country by country. So India and China kind of one each. If you weight by population and you look at the world's population, then international inequality on a person-by-person basis is probably falling, but I wouldn't bet your fortune on it. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about parallels in health. Um, Life expectancy began to rise in Britain at around the same time, the middle of the 18th century. Um, The Enlightenment is probably as close as you're going to get to a root cause of both of those things. And that, of course, pulled Britain away from other countries, the beginning of this great divergence again, but also within Britain. And I want to show you something about that. This is a picture that was first drawn by Bernard Harris And the blue line here, which runs from um, before 1550 to after 1850, shows life expectancy in Britain. Um, This comes from Tony Wrigley and colleagues' meticulous project of reconstructing life expectancy from parish registers um, in Britain. And what you can see about this graph is that it's very variable because there were horrible episodes of plagues and smallpox epidemics and things, the sweats and other things that we don't even know what they were. And these cause big dips in life expectancy for a year or two. Um, Notice that life expectancy never really got much above 40 um, and occasionally dipped down much lower than that. There's really no decent trend you can see in this thing um, over this 300-year period. Um, A long period of not very much happening. So what Harris had the idea to do um, was, what happened to the dukes? How about the aristocrats in Britain? And Hollingsworth, a long time ago, had compiled very meticulous life expectancy numbers for ducal families in Britain and superimposed them on this. Now, the dukes, you know, had a lot that the ordinary people didn't have. They had big palaces. They had servants. They had enormous amounts. If you look at contemporary accounts, it's just disgusting what they had. I mean, just, you know, Henry VIII had to be carried around by his courtiers after he got past middle age because he couldn't walk anymore from eating eight to 10,000 calories a day every day. So these people are not short of food. They're not short of places to live. They had palatial lives. So here's their life expectancy, um, which every time I see this graph, it looks amazing to me that none of this did them any good up until about 1750. Um, and then after that, something happened. So why didn't do them any good before 1750? Well, the reason it doesn't really help if you were rich if you didn't know how to make yourself healthy. And you know if your kids are dying of contaminated water and smallpox epidemics, it doesn't matter that you had a huge amount of wealth or a huge amount, of, you just didn't have the knowledge. Now, once the knowledge is there, Um, Wealth can be used to put it to some use. But before that, there's not really very much there. So what happened after 1750? Well, we don't know for sure, but let me tell you my favorite stories, um, the ones that seem to me most likely, which is um, variolation or inoculation against smallpox. Um, Now, vaccination didn't happen until 1799. Um, Variolation is a very different technique in which Someone who's got smallpox, um, you scratch the pustule and put some of that material on a lancet or some other sharp object and scratch it into an uninfected person. It sounds like the last thing you would ever want to do. Um, that gives the person a mild dose of smallpox, and with luck, they don't die, and they get lifetime immunity um, from smallpox. This technique was brought to Britain by the wife of the ambassador to Turkey, who'd observed this being routinely done in Istanbul. Um, The king um, was a bit skeptical at first, but thought he'd give it a try on his own kids. Though first, he finds some condemned prisoners and tried it on them, and then he finds what are described as abandoned children and tried it on them, and they survived. I don't know how many people here are uh, familiar with modern human subjects protocols, Um, (laughs) but prisoners and children are the two groups that are absolutely verboten. You're not allowed to go near them. But he was the king, and there wasn't a human subjects committee at court. Um, So he went ahead and then vaccinated, or didn't vaccinate, he inoculated um, all the royal infants. And then it spread through the aristocracy quite quickly. This is a time at which almost everybody got smallpox as a child. And um, if you didn't die, you got lifetime immunity. But a lot, a lot of people died. And that seems like the leading candidate for this thing. It was very expensive because the people who controlled it made you take three weeks off. They pretended it was very expensive, and it only became cheaper over time and spread to the rest of the population. Incidentally, George Washington um, variolated the whole of the Continental Army. And how did he know about it so early? He knew about it because it was brought across the Middle Passage by enslaved people from Africa and where it had been practiced for centuries, as it had in China and around the east. There's a list here of some of the other techniques that were important at that time. Um, One of the things I like about this is these techniques, we think of health innovations nowadays as starting in the rich countries and spreading out to the rest of the world. These were ones that came from the rest of the world into the rich countries, um, not the other way around. The point about this, and I'm going to draw a parallel with today, is that these are benevolent, expensive, at least initially, innovations that later spread much more widely. Now, of course, it would have been better for everybody if everybody had got them at once instead of just a few people getting them and then them spreading. But that's not the way the world works. I mean, you can't make the world work that way. And so I think of these health inequalities, what nowadays is called the gradient, as by and large good, (coughs) especially in an age of technical improvement in health, because they're harbingers of good things to come. And if you take the view that some people would take is they hate health inequalities so much, I've heard actually people argue that we should have suppressed the Surgeon General's report on smoking because all it did was open up inequalities between rich people and poor people. That seems to me just craziness on stilts. So I actually am fairly positive about these health inequalities um, because they seem to be harbingers of good things to come. I'll come back to that, but let me show you a little bit of the state of the world, the sort of thing that Ian was talking about. So this is the variant of a picture that was first drawn by Sam Preston in 1975. It shows income, GDP per capita, a price adjusted for international differences in price on the horizontal axis, Um, and on the vertical axis it shows life expectancy at birth for both sexes combined. Um, The blobs, each blob is a country. Um, The area of the blob is proportional to the population of the country. So the big blobs are the big countries um, like India and China, you can see down here. And the big blob at the top is the United States occupying its usual position of pretty poor health um, relative to its income level. Um, I tend to call this the onward and upward curve, Because what it's showing, 1960 is the bottom line, the lighter colors, 2010, 50 years later, (coughs) the darker colors, that the world is moving up to the right, um, better health, better wealth. Um, The world is getting to be a better place. Um, And there's been remarkable progress over that 50-year period. Um, The other thing that you can see is because the 60 line is actually below... Um, the um, 2010 line, that's more trouble than it's worse, um, then even in countries that did not have any income growth, meaning they didn't move along the curve, there was an improvement in health. So there's been reductions in infant child mortality around the world, even in places where there's been very little in the way of economic growth. So this is like a very positive picture But the other side to take away from this is just notice the enormous inequality in the world. I mean, if you look along this horizontal axis, you've got all these countries down here that are about as close to nothing, whereas here we are up at over $40,000 in 2005 prices. Um, Just enormous inequality, and most of the inequality in the world is inequality between countries, not inequality within countries, however large the latter is. It's these hundredfold differences in income levels across countries that really dominate world inequality. If you look at the vertical axis, there's also a lot of inequality in health, um, You know, from countries in the 40s um, up to Japan as the record holder up at the top there in the 80s. Um, again, that's like twofold um, rather than 10 or 100-fold um, as you get with the income levels. The final thing to note is those inequalities are correlated with one another. So it's not as if health and income are randomly distributed around the world. So if you get a good draw on income, you might get a bad draw on health or vice versa. The countries that do well in terms of longevity also do well in terms of high high, high income. So if you look at human well-being more broadly, world inequality looks bigger um, because the inequalities in different spaces um, go together and give you a heightened impression of inequality. Nevertheless, I take this as an enormously positive picture. This is a you know, picture of world progress on an enormous and unprecedented scale. But I want to show you the, some of the disasters, just so that um, I don't sound too Pollyannish about social progress. Um, I'm going to show you the same pictures from 1960 through to 2000. And these are um, stripped down, so the yellow circles, you can see more clearly. The red blob is gonna be South Africa, which I'll come back to in a minute. But I want you first to look at the bottom left here. The big circle is China, Um, the slightly less big one is India. And what I want you, this is from 1960. So watch what happens to China um, when you go from 1960 to 1970. It's like a 30-year increase in life expectancy in a 10-year period. It's like three years per year. Okay? You think, wow, you know, what were they doing? How did they manage to do this miracle? Well, it's not a miracle at all, of course. It's because Chairman Mao stopped killing people. Um, and in 1960, you're in the middle of this demented experiment called the Great Leap Forward in which Mao decided he was going to industrialize China in five years and killed 30 million people along the way. And so if you were to go back to 1950, for which I don't have data, it would have been much higher. So what you're looking at is one of these dips where some catastrophe happened. And that famine was not because of bad weather. Um, It was not because of crop failure, though the crops failed, um, not naturally. They failed because of toxic politics. And the recent scholarship makes it pretty clear that Ma knew what was happening and decided not to do anything about it in order to bolster his domestic and international political standing. So as far as the second half of the 20th century is concerned, this is one of the greatest catastrophes, and entirely man-made, and tells you what politics can do when politics goes wrong. Let me switch to South Africa. So South Africa, as shown here, is always below the curve. And that's essentially because it's a (laughs) smaller, rich country set inside a larger, poor country. Um, And with never the twain shall meet, at least as long as apartheid ruled. And so if you take the average of those two, you're going to finish up somewhere below this curved line. And that's what you see from South Africa. So, this inequality means that given its national income, its life expectancy is going to be way lower than you might expect. Now, if you roll that forward, here's 1970. The world is getting richer and um, healthier, and South Africa is moving with it. By 1980, it's getting a little closer to the curve. By 1990, apartheid is breaking down, and we're only four years away from its end. And South Africa's getting up there to the curve, ready to take its place along with other countries. And then in 2000, that's what happens. And of course, what we're looking looking at there is HIV AIDS. (coughs) Um, And this is not the evils of Mbeki and so on, the evils there were. Um, This you could draw for Uganda or Kenya or Malawi or Zimbabwe or Botswana. Or all the affected countries in East and Southern Africa who lost basically all of the gains in life expectancy since the war um, to the epidemic. Um, I don't believe you can read conspiracy theories about how this was inflicted on Africa. And it's not that it's not beyond human control. I mean, globalization and wars and all the other stuff that was going on in Africa certainly played a role in spreading the disease. Um, But, you know, this is just like essentially a natural, design. these things happen, these bugs come out of the woods and devour um, millions of people. I think HIV-AIDS is somewhat of an exception. You can pick up lots of books on the station bookstore telling you about dread diseases that are about to come and get us, and I think most of those are science fiction and it's sort of impossible, but HIV-AIDS makes it clear that things like this can still happen The times of plagues are not safely buried in the historical past. So, against all the progress, you've got to keep these things in mind. We're not necessarily out of the woods yet. So, let me talk a little bit about rich country health today. And I want to, of course, draw a parallel with the 18th century. So, the contemporary health improvements that affect us all today are largely driven by innovation. There's been an enormous reduction in cardiovascular disease in all the rich countries, Um, much of it by treatment. Um, Anti-hypertensives have been very important, Um, so statins. Um, And a lot of it has come from smoking and the reductions in smoking, which is the innovation of a sort. It's a pure knowledge innovation, but it's not like medical treatment um, innovation. Um, That's happened much more to men than women. This has actually reduced an inequality that people don't concern themselves with very much, usually, which is that women have longer life expectancy than men, and that inequality has actually been reduced because women have not been quitting as fast as men, and they were much later to take up um, smoking. So around the Western world, the gap between um, men and women's life expectancy has shrunk. Um, More recently, there's been major progress against cancer in various forms. Um, That is in some ways more worrying um, than the progress against cardiovascular disease, just because it's going to be much, much more expensive. And it's a threat to any sort of health system anywhere in the world as to how people are going to pay for that. Um, This um, progress in rich countries has been equalizing across countries. I mean, I don't have time to show you, but if you look at plots of cardiovascular disease over time in the rich countries before about 1975, um, they're all going in different directions. They look like random patterns. And then after 1978, when the antihypertensives and so on spread, um, the things dropped like a stone in sync um, with one another. And that's just because the information spread very quickly um, around the rich world Um, at least. It's not been so equalizing within countries, um, and there's still major um, sort of unexplained questions about why these technologies and prescriptions don't spread so quickly across people in the United States. Um, Not everybody who should be on antihypertensives is on antihypertensives because they don't go get their blood pressure checked, um, for example you can still have a heart attack outside the wrong hospital, and they forget to give you aspirin um, before they take you in, and that much reduces your chances of surviving the episode. So there's still a lot of inequalities in the United States, and those are structured um, by income. Um, I don't think I'm going to talk about that in detail, but let me say in summary here, to me even this is an arguably benign Process. There's big technological innovation going on in health, and that's good for us all. And it's even good for the people who are not getting it now because it will be available to them in due course. And what's the alternative? The alternative is to say we should choke off that innovation. Um, We shouldn't let anyone have it in order to keep equality. There's a large number of people in the health literature who argue that. I think it's crazy, but it's a strong view um, out there. To me, these innovations are good, and it's exactly like the prisoner of war is getting out of the camp. It opened up inequalities, but so what? That's because there was progress. So you're just looking at the wrong side of it somehow. Um, If I had more time, which I don't, I would um, have three or four slides about income inequality, in the United States today, which I think has its um, benign side, but also has really worrying sides. And so if anyone wants to ask about that later, I'll be happy to talk about that. But there's a long chapter in the book um, about the upsides and downsides of income inequality um, in the United States today. Um, Just to summarize, what I worry about most is the extreme financial inequality, which I don't care about very much, will creep into political inequality, which I care about rather a lot. So I'd be happy to talk about that later. So now what I want to do is get onto the global inequalities and foreign aid and why I don't think it's working. So if you think back to the Preston curve, which we had a little while ago, um, of life expectancy and income and these enormous inequalities, Most of the differences in health around the world are explained by infant and child mortality rates. I mean, it's true in Africa that adult mortality rates are higher than they are here, but that's not the big difference. The big difference is your chance of making it to five years old. is much less in Africa or India than it is here. Um, Though, again, to reinforce what Ian said, and I have a lot of fun with this in the book, Um, the infant mortality rate in India today is considerably lower than it was in Edinburgh in the year in which I was born. Um, So it gives you a good example of just how much progress there has been. Um, These children are dying not from weird tropical diseases for which we have no cure. They're dying from things that we've known how to fix for 100 years, um, or maybe a little less. But they're dying from not being vaccinated. They're dying from drinking dirty water, They're dying from not having antibiotics when they have a respiratory infection, and so on. In many cases, they're dying within sight of um, modern hospitals that have fully Western standards. In the country I know best, in the poor world, India, half of all children are severely malnourished. There are at least two standard deviations off their growth charts. They're too skinny, and they're not tall enough. Um, And that's in spite of the fact that India is no longer classified as a poor country um, by the World Bank. It's a middle-income country. Um, It's not middle income for everyone. As people like Peter Singer, my colleague Peter Singer, who I debate these things with all the time, or Jeff Sachs will tell you, the cost of fixing these things is not very large. You know, if we were to bring these kids here and say, how much does it give them to give their shots, you're talking about pennies. And even if you multiply it by a billion people, you're talking about dollars, but not big dollars compared with the things that governments spend money on. Um, I think, along with Peter Singer and Jeff Sachs, that there really is a clear ethical obligation to assist if we can. So what I'm worried about here is not the main ethical obligation. What I'm worried about is unintended consequences. Let me talk about some of those. But let me first be positive. Um, There are lots of things that I think we can do to make this better. I like to put this we in quotes, because in this development literature, this word we, you always, when everyone says we should do this, you want to ask them who they're talking about there. And you can make people very uncomfortable by prying apart the word we in this sort of context. And usually, if you pry hard enough, they switch into the passive voice. They say, these children must be helped, (laughs) which shifts responsibility even further from the we statement. So I think there's lots of things that we could be doing that we're not doing. So um, someone at Princeton said to me, if I gave you a billion dollars to spend on the poor of the world, would you burn it? (laughs) And I said, no, I would not burn it. What I would do is I'd get on the red line up here, and go out to Bethesda, Maryland, and I would create a new National Institute of Health which focuses on diseases of um, poor countries or better delivery systems that will look at malaria and TB and things that we don't have an institute for. We have an institute for HIV-AIDS, but that's because it was a threat to the United States. So if we were serious about improving health, that's one thing we could really do. Advanced purchase commitments are another idea that's in its infancy. The World Bank and the US Treasury gets together with the Italian government and says, if you come up with a vaccine for this disease, um, we will guarantee in advance to buy 10 million doses at $20 a dose. And then the pharmaceutical companies and everybody else who have the talents and skills get out there and try to make this thing. There's been one success for pneumococcal disease already um, and others um, could follow. I think the World Bank ought to be turned into a consulting house and not to compete um, with McKinsey and Gallup and other people that give consulting services. There's an enormous amount of expertise in the World Bank. Most of it's locked up in the World Bank because the World Bank does not give technical assistance without loans. Um, and that seems to me a terrible scandal. There are people all around the world who would like to get to that expertise, and you can't because if you don't borrow from the bank, They won't supply you with technical assistance. Um, Most people here will know about the inequities of cotton subsidies and other trade restrictions which are hurting poor countries. Um, Selling arms to poor countries seems to be a slightly odd thing to do when you're claiming to give them humanitarian assistance. Um, Now, the US doesn't actually claim that its aid program is primarily pushed by humanitarian motives. It talks about US interests around the world. But if you go to Sweden or Holland, where they do talk about that, it doesn't seem to stop them selling guns um, to the same people that they're giving aid to. That seems to me just a really odd thing to do. Maybe there is a coherent argument why it's a good idea to give people aid and guns at the same time, but I'm not sure what it is. There's lots of global public goods issues. There's issues about whether you should recognize obnoxious dictatorships, um, whether you should enforce their debt obligations. Um, whether you should allow them to sell commodities to the world. So those are ideas that have been floating around. This is what Jagdish Bhagwati has called aid for. He talked about it in the context of Africa, aid for Africa. These things cost money. You know, we can spend our money and make ourselves feel better by doing these things, and I think it would actually help. What Jagdish contrasts that with is aid in, and that's pouring money into African countries or elsewhere. And that, to me, is what I think is doing more harm than good. So let me just give you the key arguments, and then I'll be quiet. Um, to me, what is missing in these countries is not, it's not money that's missing. These problems cannot be solved easily by more money. And to me, this is like a confusion between necessity and sufficiency in the mathematical sense. It's clear, and you know, Jeff Sachs often likes to say this, You could not have a better health system in many African countries or indeed in India um, without more money. You know, it's just not possible. They're not spending hardly any money. And if you had a better health system, it would cost more money. On the other hand, if you put more money into the health system that's there now, it's not going to help things because the government is not capable of delivering health care and it's not capable of regulating the private sector in delivering health care either. So you just get bad stuff all the way around. It's the lack of state capacity um, that seems to be the problem here. Now, we like to complain a lot about our government, and, you know, we had a partial shutdown here not very long ago, but I want you to imagine what it would be like if we had a total government shutdown. Now, some people might like that, but I think it would be sort of hard, and not just the federal government, but the state governments and the local governments, And all the functions of government suddenly went away. That would be like waking up in the Central African Republic. You know, I mean, all of these things that we make our lives livable. And some of them we don't need. Some of them we do. Um, But we need these collective goods, most of which we would not be capable of providing for ourselves. So there's a contract out there which is a contested contest contract all the time. Um, it's, that's what democracy is about. It's what the press is about. It's what media is about. But, you know, we mostly pay our taxes. And in return, we get a whole bunch of stuff. And there's a list of some of the things here. You know, laws, police, health and pensions, education, regulation, research, etc. cetera. And, you know, you could argue about which of those are essential and which are not. But it's a lot of stuff. And without any of that we would find it almost impossible. And to me, it's the lack of this sort of contract that is characteristic of poor countries. And to me, the disaster of aid is that it makes it impossible for these contracts to come about, and it undermines these contracts. If the government of some country is getting all of its revenue from international aid agencies, And you're going to say, well, that doesn't happen. Yes, it does. There are countries all over Africa where 100% of government revenue is coming from international aid. (coughs) Why would these governments pay any attention whatsoever to the needs of their own citizens? And they just won't. Um, And so effectively, you get a situation in which the government and the aid agencies have taken their own population as hostages in order to make them both feel better off And that, to me, is just a disaster. That's the true reason why, to me, um, why it doesn't work. I've been very stunned reading Oxfam's literature recently, and I thought I'd go and read Oxfam and find out why I was wrong or what arguments I needed to counter. And they take an almost identical position. They've moved a tremendous amount of their advocacy to what they call external advocacy, which is the things I was talking about before. And they understand that governments are undermined by aid, They take a somewhat more positive view than I do about the degree of that undermining, but the arguments are essentially um, the same. Um, many people have misread me to believe that if you only could give the money to the people instead of giving the money to the governments, it would be okay. Now, I think in some cases that would be okay, but it certainly isn't going to work in general because these people have no power. Why would the guys who are running the country let them keep the money? And in general, they won't. Um, I I told this story today already, but let me tell it one more time. It's an extreme case, but it illustrates the point. I mean, after the massacres in Rwanda, the Hutus who'd done the massacring were chased by Kagame out into the eastern DRC, and they settled around Goma. There was a huge humanitarian emergency because their wives and children and, um, you know, there was no food or water, and the aid agencies moved in in force. Um, It became clear within a month or two that about two-thirds of the aid money was going to finance training camps where the massacres were, the people who'd done the massacre were training to complete the job. Um, And the money was used to buy arms, to train people, to basically prepare for another massacre. Um, The best of the agencies, led by Médecins Sans Frontieres, moved out but got completely excoriated by the other agencies for doing this. But I think Oxfam and Save the Children saw and eventually moved out. Um, Some of the European countries, like Sweden, saw what was happening and eventually pulled out. But aid agencies were still coming in when Kagame swept through and closed up the camps. Now, you want to ask yourself, if you'd been able to give the money directly to those women and children, like during one of these new cell phone schemes that everybody's talking about, would that have solved the problem? Well, of course it wouldn't have solved the problem, because the women and children are in control of the guys who are doing the massacring. Now, that is an extreme case, and not all countries are like that. But that loop of incentives and lack of accountability is going to be there in all cases, and I think it undermines everything, even if the aid were good in the first place. Let me skip to the last thing. Um, People come to me and say, what about aid for health? Um, You really wanna close that down. Um, They say PEPFAR is giving all this money um, to supply antiretrovirals. The Dutch government is doing that too. If you pull that stuff away, those people are gonna die. Is that really what you want? So let me be careful about that. Um, There are millions of people alive on antiretroviral drugs today who would otherwise be dead. Um, There were 1 million people on such therapy in 2003. There were 10 million in 2010, most paid for um, by outside aid. Um, I don't want to discount that achievement at all. Um, if you want to find a success for aid, um, this is one of the places that you might want to look. My argument is different from that. It's just that this does not suspend the previous argument, which is this money pouring into the countries, even though at the first round it's being used for something very good, still undermines the local provision of health care. It undermines local decision-making. It Takes away the liberty of the people to decide on their own patterns of healthcare and what they can do. To me, I would say we'll do this for another ten years, and at the end of ten years, we're not going to be doing this anymore. And what I hope would happen is what happened in South Africa under Mbeki, that you get local activism, um, you get people rebelling, you get people taking control of their own destiny, and determining what happens to their health system. One of the things that affected me a lot in thinking about this was there was an election, I think in Canada, about seven or eight years ago, in which one of the issues that came up in the election was whether Canadian aid should be spent on HIV-AIDS or it should be spent on maternal and child health. And that's a real question, and that's an issue that's being debated in this literature whether all the money that's going to HIV is undercutting maternal and child health or vice versa. So it's a real issue. I'm not debating the issue. But the issue should not be debated in Canada. I mean, that's an issue that should be being debated in Botswana and in Malawi and in South Africa and the places that are affected. These people's healthcare systems should not be determined by politicians, in many cases, who are trying to whitewash themselves in front of their own public. And I think that's been a disaster. Okay. Inclusion is the world is a much better place than it used to be, and health and other dimensions, too. Many people are still to make the great escape. We can help them by giving assistance for poor countries, but assistance in poor countries is always problematic, wracked by unintended consequences. And that's especially true when aid is large relative to the economy. If I had a single policy proposal, which I do, but I have no idea how to enforce it, I would say that no country in the world should get more than 25% of its government expenditure from abroad. Um, and that that would help a lot of these problems. The trouble is there are all these competing aid agencies, and you'd never get them all to sign off on that. But you could try. And poor people, like rich people, need good government, and they need their own good government, not a government that was thought up for them by the World Bank. Thanks very much.
0: Thanks very much. Uh, I'm now very pleased to introduce our next speaker, who will give Brief remarks, excuse me, I have a bothersome cough that I'm trying to suppress, as you may have noticed. Charles Kenny is a senior fellow at the Center for Global Development. He he covers a lot of issues, including the post-2015 development agenda, the role of technology and quality of life improvements, uh, the causes of economic growth, the end of the Malthusian trap, and so on. He is the author of a book, Getting Better, Why Global Development is Succeeding and How We Can Improve the World, even more, the title recalls the title of a 2000-year 2000, 2000 Cato book. It's getting better all the time. Co-authored by Julian Simon, he is also a contributing editor at Foreign Policy magazine <clears throat> and a regular contributor to Business Week magazine. He has also previously been at the World Bank. Please help me welcome Charles Kenny. Thank you.
2: Um, well, well, thank you very much. I, I, I'm sorry, if you're hoping for fireworks, you, uh, you, you're going to be a bit disappointed because um, I, I really want to do three things. Uh, um, uh, one is to say how absolutely wonderful this book is and how you should all buy a copy right now and then go home and buy two more on Amazon to up the rankings. <laughs> um, uh, but two, I mean, <laughs> sort of one B, if you will, is that, that that actually, you know, given my pro-aid views, and I'll I'll, I'll come to that in a minute. Um, uh, n- uh, n- me being at Cato and saying uh, uh, such nice things about the book might count as damning with warm praise, and I'm sorry if if that's the unintended consequence of uh, uh, of being nice about the book. Um, Secondly, I, I do want to argue with the title a little bit, and I will come back to as to why. Um, and third, uh, I, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the the, the, the aid issue. Um, but, you know, first of all, um, one, this is actually simply a beautiful book. Uh, the, 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 uh, the design alone is lovely, but the content is even better. Um, uh, and it is written by somebody who, uh, you know, I, I'm sure you already know, but, but it is just you know, a huge global expert on these topics. You have no better guide. And one of the, the bits that... You know, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about uh, very uh, similar issues, um, uh, uh, but, you know, I learned a huge amount um, from what the book says um, about the sort of the assumptions and biases and flaws in the very best of data on health and 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 um, the economy <coughs> that we have, you know, the the... the you know, this includes data from the best statistical agencies in the world, you know, let alone statistical agencies in, 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 in Africa. You just have to make a bunch of very arguable assumptions in order to come up with income numbers that are comparable over time. When you try and make those income or consumption numbers comparable across countries, you have to make some really... Big assumptions, um, and and the book lays out what these assumptions are. In in um, I found actually gripping detail. I know it's hard to believe that <laughs> discussions of statistics could be gripping detail, but, but honestly, uh, 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 trust me, read it. Um, you know, when you are comparing uh, a U.S. consumption basket uh, of today with a Chinese consumption basket of 1940. The number of goods you have in common in order to make sort of fair income comparisons, how much how much would it cost to buy this basket? There aren't very many items that you would find in common, so you just have to uh, make lots of heroic guesses. One of the nice things about knowing that you're in the hands of an expert like Professor Deaton when it comes to this data is when he's willing to draw conclusions, you can be pretty darn sure the conclusions stand up. that, uh you know the evidence is just you know inescapable if I may uh that that, that health globally has been um, you know um, improving dramatically um that uh, income over much of the world has been improving dramatically um and and that you know there's a there just is a huge amount of progress so uh, uh I could say more wonderful things but I'll 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 stop um, uh, and and argue a little bit with the title, uh, which is the Great Escape, and I actually think it really is about the Great Escapes, um, and the reason for needing the S is that actually I think three different escapes are being talked about, linked but different. And 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 in Stephen's talk, he, he you know effectively showed you at least two of those. Um, that is, there's the sort of the income escape, which you know, but last ten years has been more of a global escape. But but uh, you know the big story of the last one hundred and fifty years is is certainly um, divergence across countries and some countries, Democratic Republic of the Congo, you know not least, still pretty much as poor as a country can be. Um, uh, uh, to the extent you believe uh, uh, another wonderful Angus, sadly <coughs> departed Angus Madison. Um, uh, 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 in, if you look at the Democratic Republic. Of Congo, it is you know as poor as Gaul in the time of Caesar. I mean, you just you really can't get much poorer. Um, you know, other countries, including the United States, clearly a lot richer. So there has been this great divergence. last 10 years, we've seen um, uh, some turnaround in that. Um, and then there's the, the, the great escape in terms of from uh, early death. Now. Again, countries like the DRC are still a long way behind. And, and, and the tragedy of AIDS means that that uh, some countries in, in, in Southern Africa you know, have lost much of the gains they, they, they made uh, since um, uh, independence, although, you know, again, the, the, the last few years have seen um, uh, encouraging upticks. Um, but it is a much more widespread phenomenon, and the evidence of global convergence since The the 50s and 60s in health, I think, uh, is—I hope you wouldn't argue with it. I I think it's unarguable. Um, uh, uh, So these are kind of these have to be two slightly different escapes, right? One one involves huge amounts of progress, but but much spread. One involves um, at least over the last 50, 60 years, huge amounts of progress and convergence in outcomes worldwide. Um, I'm going to come back to to what makes those two different. I just want to point out the, the 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 third escape. Um, there is a wonderful um, uh, uh, section in the book um, about the unnecessary evils uh, committed in the name of um, international population control. There is a, a very human line uh, in in the book about how actually parents wanted these kids that we're all saying, you know, um, we should have fewer of. Um, uh, uh, and I, I, I think that is... Um, absolutely right, and points to an, another escape that the, the book illustrates, which is the escape from the Malthusian trap. Nowhere worldwide is seeing the sort of the Malthusian process of rising incomes leads to rising populations leads to declining incomes. Nowhere, nowhere. Um, even countries like the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and this is the worst example worldwide that we have. The DRC's GDP is about twice what it was in 1960, to the extent you believe the statistics. Um, uh, Even in the DRC, there is not this sort of limit to output, because of, I don't know, uh, a fixed factor of production like land, which means there cannot be economic growth, so any increase in population is going to lead to a decrease in uh, uh, income or health outcomes. You know, there is just no link um, between um, uh, 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 faster population growth um, and, no, strong link between faster population growth, um, income growth and uh, health. These things are are not connected in a Malthusian manner at all. And all of those Malthusians out there, and there are many, many of them, um, you know, are, are, are barking up the wrong tree. This is not to say declines in fertility have not been a great thing for the planet, uh, uh, and in particular for individual women, who many more of whom now have the choice to have fewer children. And I think that is a great thing for them. Not only are they less likely to die in childbirth, um, but also they can spend their time doing something else other than being baby factories. I'm 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 a huge fan of of declining fertility, but you know not for Malthusian reasons. And I think the Great Escape, uh, the uh, the book you know points points out. Um, uh, uh, why Malthusianism is such a bankrupt idea. Um, so, back to sort of <laughs> what, how are there the, these sort of two different stories of, of, of health and, uh, 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 and income? Um, uh, another thing I love about the book is, and I'm about to mispronounce, um, Haruspices. Haruspices?
1: Yeah, I think so. I don't know. I just write
2: it. A... Okay. Uh, uh... <laughs> I'm going to quote Um, uh, the the, the, the people who make um, sort of generalizations about what causes economic growth. They make fatuous generalizations based on coincidence. Etruscan and Roman horuspices did the same with entrails of chickens, Um, and I think that's uh, I I, I couldn't agree more. But uh, I I wish I could put it as well Um, uh, that you know there is obviously no sort of simple um, answer to the cause of economic growth. But if you look at the pattern of health convergence worldwide, it actually matches up quite well to very old models of economic growth that kind of assumed that technology would flow around the world um, without too much trouble. And technology being the big factor behind increases in productivity, um, that would mean everywhere would kind of converge to a reasonably high level of income given time. Now, it turned out to be an awful model of economic growth because we've seen this divergence in income maybe it 's actually a better model for um uh, uh, health outcomes worldwide, but you know the spread of technology uh, has been a huge factor technology broadly defined uh, uh, has been a huge factor and, and 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 the presentation pointed out you know some of the technologies we might be talking about here vaccinations washing your hands after going to the bathroom, uh, not going to the bathroom in fields, um, so on and so forth. There there, there, there are um, a bunch of sort of ideas and technologies that have clearly played a big role there that have spread not far enough, but but quite rapidly. Whereas the technologies to increase um, productivity that leads to economic growth, leads to income growth, (coughs) don't appear to um, spread across borders uh, quite so straightforwardly. And, of course, uh, as as the book suggests, um, uh, you know, one reason might be that um institutions political uh, and social institutions have a powerful role to play um in stopping that technology flow or in in, in, in uh, uh, regulating that technology flow you will um and and professor deaton's sort of fear of uh inequality is because of its corrosive effect on institutions this is of course you know the, uh, his fear of of aid sort of comes from the same place, and i would um i you know here here is where i will argue a little bit uh and in 3 minutes or less um that uh, 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 uh you know the idea that copious aid is a you know a robot to development i think gives aid too much credit um uh, which is to say i just don't really think It's easy to make the case at all that aid has had a big impact on economic growth, um, uh, positive or negative, um, uh, anywhere in the world. I I would say that absolutely, um, you know, when you get up to very high levels of of aid dependency, um, those are where the most plausible cases are. But I mean, it's it's worth pointing out how rare those cases are in a sort of global sense. Government spending in developing countries now equals about six trillion dollars a year. Um, uh, overseas development assistance is about 0.15 trillion. So, you know, it's just not a big part of the pot anymore in in global terms. And, you know, even in Africa, uh, uh, most countries um, are not seeing aid. Most countries are not seeing aid as a huge percentage of of government expenditure, even though some certainly are. Um, uh, And so... You know, I think the idea that, 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 that aid is big enough in most places to have this corrosive impact is wrong. Um, and the story, the, the sort of political economy story being told in the book is, 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 is quite plausible for a small and declining num- number of countries. Which leaves the question, well, look, if aid isn't actually a big part of government budgets, what are we, you know, why are we bothering anymore at all? Um, and I do think we actually, uh, you know, frankly need a new rationale for aid. The old one didn't work, uh, doesn't work for two reasons. One... It's just not enough money uh, for the old arguments to work. But 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 two, you know, frankly, the old arguments don't work because uh, the evidence that aid ever had a large effect on on economic growth is is rather weak. Um, but I'd say rather than sort of saying right, that's that's a reason to um, uh, 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 cut aid flows, it's a reason I think to make aid better, because um, I think there are a number of things, especially in, in in health, as pointed out in the book, but also in other areas where where aid can have an impact. Um, and a number of ways of certainly improving the quality of aid. I mean, you know, for, for most of uh, the last 50, 60 years, aid was given for a whole load of reasons that had nothing to do with improving the quality of life um, of, of people in the developing world, and had a lot to do with, you know, the Cold War, uh, with uh, Beltway bandits here in D.C. wanting large consulting contracts with, you know, various other uh, uh, interests that didn't have much to do uh, uh, with improving quality of life. And, and if we actually managed, and... This is, I admit, a large political challenge, especially in this town at this time. But if we managed uh, uh, to actually focus development assistance on assisting development uh, rather than all of these other things, I think it it could still play a role, although I would also agree that uh, uh, were I to, um, you know, have only... 10 minutes to make the world a better place uh, 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 and have absolute power I'd be focusing on trade and investment <coughs> and migration uh, uh, and maybe give you know 30 seconds of my time to aid this is indeed largely a story about other factors but with that just to repeat the fact that this is a, a beautiful book in many different ways and 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 I can't recommend it more strongly
0: Thanks very much. We have time for questions now. And if you have a question, raise your hand and wait for the microphone. Identify yourself and your affiliation. We'll take the first question in front.
3: James of someone old enough to have read the book that the movie was based on. And you indicated you had a few words to say about your title since the historic ending of The Great Escape included a mass shooting and I think two or three successful escapes. So is the metaphor end was there go- coming out of the hole? Or does the metaphor go beyond
1: that? Um, I let me deal with that quickly. There's a postscript at the end of the book which takes that up, and several of my reviewers had pointed out this is not a great metaphor, given everybody dies um at the end. I think three escape, yeah, but there's a mass shooting in a forest, and um the guy who led it is executed on the orders personal orders of Hitler. that's from the true story rather than the than the movie um, so. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know the answer to this, but one of the things I talk about in the postscript is, you know, 250 years is not such a long time. You know, maybe it's a flash in the pan. So maybe it'll be like Kaifeng in China in the 11th century, where you had these <coughs> enormous prosperity, and then it all went away. So maybe 50 years from now, there'll be nothing left. And we'll all be shot, <laughs> metaphorically. And it's not hard to think about things that might bring that about. I mean, there are standard threats that people talk about all the time. Some of them are real threats, some of them are not. But, you know, inequality could do that under some circumstances. Global warming could do that under some circumstances. There's just lots of things that can... And toxic politics is always lurking there, waiting to bring us all down. So I would not be at all surprised if this 250 years is just another episode and we'll all die in the forest at the end of it. I actually don't think that's true because I think the desire for human progress is so deeply embedded in all of us that we would overcome those catastrophes should they happen. And even if you can fill in the tunnels and make it impossible to get out, you can't remove the knowledge of how to dig a tunnel. And I think we would overcome those things. So I'm optimistic but I think you have to recognize the possibility that this is just a flash and pan.
0: Take a question up front. Another question up front.
3: Hi, I came out of personal interest, but I, maybe I, I just became an affiliate member of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine that propels this question. Are there any studies, have you done any studies about nutrition uh, affecting diet? I mean, you know, I've been at a conference where... Heart disease can be a toothless paper tiger if you go to a plant-based diet. There are tribes in Africa that have that versus in this country. You know, this is just one example uh, that nutrition really uh, in significantly increases life expectancy much more than anything else discussed so far.
1: you want me to answer any that studies like I could that? save up some. Okay, we'll take a couple of,
0: yeah. of questions. Question right there.
3: Hi, I'm Danny Leipziger from uh, GW Business School. Uh, Sounds like a great book. I'm going to buy it. Good Christmas gift. Um, My only concern is not so much the sweeping uh, view of history, which is probably going to be great to read, but the sense that your findings and the title may be misunderstood and misused, Um, the sense that. Inequality occurs in a benign environment in which good things occur and not everybody can benefit, uh, may mislead some people. And the great escape, unless they did a lottery to decide who is going to escape, uh, may not have been uh, an, an even game from the outset. So I, I wonder whether you have any concerns that not only at Cato, but in other places, uh, similar to Reinhardt and Rogoff uh, and other academic work, it may be misunderstood. It may be uh, taken that uh, whatever happens, happens. And we don't really have much uh, influence on on, on that inequality. Uh, So I wonder if you could comment on that.
1: Thanks.
0: One more? Yeah. Okay. the question in the back, right there.
1: Um, hi, Martin Worcester. Um, so I assume that the Gates Foundation's <laughs> big support of vaccines is something that you think is a good idea and you'd give a thumbs up to is a useful thing that the West should be doing? Yeah, okay. I mean, the answer is yes on that. I I don't have a problem with that. I have a problem with the Gates Foundation obsession that technology is gonna solve all problems. Um, And that to me, without thinking about politics is quite serious. I mean, I gave a talk similar to this, though a bit different at the World Bank yesterday. And uh, my respondents said that now we have biometric ID cards for everybody on the planet. Uh, The world poverty has been solved. Um, which is the opposite of what I think (laughs) that, you know, if you put these technologies into situations with bad politics, it's going to make things worse, not make them better. But vaccines is part of what I would have on my positive list there. Um, Danny's point about inequality. I think you would probably be reassured if you read chapter five of the book. So I talked today about um, the health inequalities And I think they are largely benign, though some of them are troubling. You know, we've known for a very, very long time that smoking is bad for your health, and yet that has not spread throughout the population in the way that you might have helped it to. So that's troubling. And I don't think the people who worry about health inequalities are completely crazy, though I think a lot of them are sort of crazy. I mean, you know, I went to a conference, really, where there was a majority vote, in favor of going back and suppressing the Surgeon General's report, you know, on the grounds that it had led to terrible health inequalities. But in chapter five of the book, I talk about income inequality. And to me, that's much more two sided. I mean, I think there are really positive things about it, which are what make the world go round. But I think there are deadly dangers there, too. And I think the corruption of politics by extreme income inequality is something I worry about a lot. Um, I think one of the things we were talking about before we came here is it's worth going back and studying what happened 100 years ago when income inequality was at similar reasons, similar levels in the United States. There had been a huge burst of technical progress. And yet the progressive era undid a lot of that. And thinking about what happened then, I think, is interesting for what's happening today. But I'm not Pollyannish about that. And I don't really think what must be, must be. I mean, I think we can do things. And I think political action is a very important part of what we do. I think nutrition is very important. I'm skeptical that you can solve these problems by that. I mean, you know, the people who are malnourished in India don't eat meat. They eat entirely vegetarian things, and it does them a lot of harm a lot of the time. So I'm not sure there are magic bullets there. But I really do believe that if you look across Africa, for instance, there are nutritional niches all over the place, and it has major effects on health. So I'm not against that line of inquiry at all. Okay, we'll take another quick round of questions right here.
3: My name is Stephen Shore. I was struck by one of your graphs, the one about um, per capita income and life expectancy. It seems that life expectancy flatlines, and regardless of how much per capita income might become that the line would never reach a um, median age of, at birth of 90 years, let alone 85. Is this a correct conclusion? And if so, is this something we should accept? Or is it a goal to actually raise the life expectancy um, toward 90?
1: I shouldn't have shown you that graph. The answer is no. <laughs> um, if you take logarithms along the, if you put a log scale on the horizontal axis, that's a straight line. Um, so it's actually not flatlining, though people find it irresistible to put a flat line across the top of there and say exactly what you've said. Um, and, but on reflection, if you put it on a log scale, it's clearly the effective income, if it is an effective income, which I somewhat doubt, um, is less at higher income levels, but it's still there. Um, the U.S. tends to pull down the curve, of course, because it has such lousy life expectancy relative. Take a question right
0: there. Uh, Pat Span, just myself. Um, I wonder if both of you could comment on uh, talking about life expectancy and health. And I was just thinking last week or so there was an article in uh, one of the local papers about. you know, cultural and political issues about uh, against uh, polio vaccination. Right. And um, in a, I, I wonder if you, if you, both of you have a, uh, an idea of how do you, how do should we even care? I mean, it, to me, this is sort of self-inflicted. And, um, but how do you, it, it, obviously that's going to affect the uh, life expectancy in those populations years from now when kids develop polio. The, uh, and other diseases that I've, I've read of other diseases the same way. So, so do either of you have an idea of how do you uh, change these attitudes?
1: Well, I wish I believed that we're self-inflicted. I mean, uh, you know, it may be self-inflicted at the population level, but the religious fanatics who are stopping this happening um, are not the people who are necessarily being hurt by it. You know, so if you could choose whether to have the vaccine or not, that would be one thing. But if some other group decides for you to weather the vaccine, that's a different thing altogether. Um, If I can just put one other thing into the mix, um, which is a lot of people in developing countries think this is being inflicted upon them by rich countries. They say, we're afraid of polio, and you want to make us do this in order to protect yourselves. You don't care about us at all. And in some countries, like in India, there's now good evidence that the desperate struggle to eliminate polio is actually hurting other health services. So it's a complicated question. But, I mean, I mean, I'm a great believer in letting people have what they want in these circumstances. I don't think we should be vaccinating people against their will. Hmm.
2: I do. Uh, but uh, uh, um, polio, to some extent, is a, a, a vaccination campaign in some sense a victim of its own success. I mean, polio doesn't. A a victim of its own success. It just doesn't... It's not a major health issue anywhere in the world, including Afghanistan or Pakistan or Nigeria, where, you know, there are still some cases out there. Um, And that does make it less of a pressing issue for parents. I mean, if you compare it to the 1950s in the United States, where, you know, tens of thousands of kids uh, were suffering polio every year, and it was a national emergency, you know, that's what gets people motivated to to get their kids vaccinated when the vaccine finally appears. Um, So, you know the downside to the upside of of almost having wiped out polio. I would say, though, with polio, that there are, you know, you wanted a a solid policy suggestion. Um, I think the fact that it leaked out that the CIA had been using vaccination campaigns as part of its intelligence-gathering operations in Pakistan, you know, might have something to do with the problem and actually separating, uh, uh, saying, you know, some things uh, uh, are off-limits, for intelligence and military operations and that includes the global public good the vaccination campaigns would be a good policy proposal
1: but you know let's let's say you have a kid and you're worried about the kid getting polio you can give the vaccine to the kid mm-hmm. your kid is protected why should you force other people to have the vaccine
2: Because uh, you can only give the vaccine after a certain length of time. Some kids don't respond to the vaccine. Lots of other kids are going to suffer because uh, you've decided selfishly not to vaccinate your kid.
1: No, because that's not true, because they can get the vaccine.
2: No, uh, uh, you cannot give the vaccination at birth. Some kids don't respond to the vaccine. If you don't get up to herd immunity, you have a real problem.
0: I'm afraid we have time for just one last quick question and quick answers. We'll take it one from up front, please.
4: I want to follow up, especially uh, Professor Deaton. You're sort of um, going against everything you've written about. I want to raise the issue the Surgeon General for Portland Smoking, uh, better health care in poorer countries, but you shouldn't force it. Now, you can't have it both ways. So, should we be in this country or other countries? And to you too, Mr. Canney, regulating, making more have a policy of more regulations we already have with smoking, with uh beer and wine and alcohol, substance abuse, with vaccinations. Are you saying you shouldn't make people do have them or you should? Because it contradicts your whole
1: premise of what
4: you've been writing about. It, it should we have more regulations? Should government officials be, or government be more involved, like, yeah, you got to get your kid vaccinated, yeah, you got to get a vaccination for saying shingles, okay. and stuff like that.
1: I think I, the vaccination were, is a little bit hard for the reasons that Charles gave, which I partially accept, but I do think this argument is not fully recognized, that, you know, if you can protect yourself, why should other people have to do this? Then do we need more regulations? I don't think so, and I, I don't think I'm arguing against myself at all. I mean, I think the, the big benefit of the Surgeon General's report was to get the information out there. Um, and I'm not against the, I'm certainly not against the information being out there, but I'm actually a defender of people smoking if they want to smoke. I mean, I do think smoking in public places is an issue that needs regulation. But I mean, I'm, I really am an old fashioned economist in that way, which is I think there are externalities associated with certain behavior that require some sort of response. Um, but I don't think we need to. The information is, to me, the really important thing.
0: Thanks very much. I'm afraid we've run out of time. Please help me and join me in (laughs) thanking the speakers.